Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work, the weekly podcast from the American University of Beirut, where we talk with faculty members and scholars about the research they're doing, what they're discovering, and what it means for the rest of us. We have a very distinguished uh, guest this week in Professor Georges Saliba, who is the director of the Farouk Jabbar Center for Arabic and Islamic Science and Philosophy. Uh, Dr. Saliba, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rami, for uh, hosting me, and it gives me a pleasure to see you again. You bet. And uh, Arabic and Islamic science and philosophy can take up about 20 years of discussion, which we're going to do in 20 minutes. Uh, So the key key point I want to ask you is what are you, in this vast universe of uh, Arabic and Islamic science and philosophy, what what are you focusing on? What are the issues that you're researching, and uh, then you can tell us what you're discovering. Very good. Uh, I Actually, I'll be very brief because I know your time is limited. I will uh, tell you that I'm actually preoccupied now in focusing on three main issues. First, how did this civilization of science come to be within the Islamic civilization? I, I call it the initial beginnings of Islamic science, and Uh, what we know about it, what people have been telling us about it, and hence my latest research, actually to run counter to the arguments that we have been hearing so far. Two, I am preoccupied also in uh, in the manner in which when Islamic civilization came in contact with earlier civilization, particularly the Greek civilization, which had a tremendous influence all over the world, not only over Islamic civilization, And how did the Islamic civilization deal with that particular aspect of contact uh, with the Greek? Of course, the third issue, which has been preoccupying me now for about 10 10 to 15 years, is exactly what happened when we have all of this scientific production, which I prove and everybody actually has has agreed to, that there was a flourishing civilization. Only the problem is, when do we call it the golden age of Islamic civilization? Mm. Why did it come to a halt? And when did it come to a halt? And what are the features that we call actually features of the decline of Islamic civilization? Those are the three main points that I have been working on and continue to work on. Of course, you hop from one to the other depending on what's available in the sources and Mm -hmm. when we have a chance to resume work on this and work on that, and so on. So these are the areas that I'm now exploring. And uh, let's put it this way, that these are the areas that build the fire in my belly so that I wake up every morning and forget the misery around me and decide to do this work. Well, that's what great scholars do at fine universities. And AUB is fortunate uh, to have you and the Faru Jabbar Center. So let's start from the the beginning. The... uh, the initial beginnings of uh, science in the Islamic civilization. What are you looking at? What are you finding? Well, uh, you see, I've already stated in this book that I called it Islamic Science and the Making of European Renaissance. Uh, the first two chapters of that book actually speak of what is called the traditional uh, theory of how science came to be in the Islamic civilization. And traditional theory tells us that the Greeks invented the miracle of science the Arabs simply translated it, and uh, till the 11th century, they died off, and from there on, uh, European Middle Ages, and then later Renaissance took over, and we forget about all of these things. 
part of that story is true, meaning in the sense that there was a contact with the Greek civilization, but the Greek civilization that the Muslim civilization knew was a later feature, and then it fitted itself within the political and the scientific debates of early rise of the Islamic empire. Meaning, I'm talking about the time when the prophet's companions began to die off, actually, and uh, now the, the policy that, uh, that the, the religion was transformed into a state, mm -hmm. and hence the state got the form of Islamic civilization, early part of it begins about uh, the early uh, Umayyad times, say about 670 uh, AD, and then it continues from there on. Now, during this part, the early part, we were told that the Islamic civilization came in contact almost by, by uh, uh, Hajar, and mm -hmm. then it is only there in this contact they began to discover the Greek thought, they began to discover philosophy, they began to discover all sorts of other things that constitute later on the basic foundation of, um, of science and philosophy. Right. What I'm finding is that uh, this actually happened very, very early in Islamic civilization, and it happened for reasons that are purely inner Islamic developments and not waiting for the Greek translations to come. For example, wow. Uh, when when the, the the caliphate passed on from the time of the prophet to the Umayyads, and that transition was extremely crucial in mm -hmm. the Islamic civilization because it produced also the famous split between what we now call Sunni Islam, Shiite Islam, generated exactly by the wars that went on between the year 655 and 661, Mm -hmm. Those are the times when the political picture on the ground necessitated that the intellectuals of that period begin to articulate what is it that they want to do and what is permissible for the yeah. governing body, in this case the caliph, is permissible to do and what should the rest of the, of the believers accept from the caliph or not. So these right. kind of, of political debates were the ones that initiated what I think is the philosophical issues that will become later very important for the rise of Islamic science and philosophy. And what about the state itself with the, uh, with the Umayyad dynasty? Does the fact that we have an organized, more organized uh, formal government system, uh, did that help prod and encourage uh, philosophical and scientific and other uh, discoveries and research and analysis? Yeah. Yes and no. Uh, on the one hand, yes, the definitive uh, posting of Muawiyah as a governor and as a ruler as of the year 661 becomes himself the caliph, of course consolidated all the power into his hand. And of course, you have to remember, he governed from Damascus, did right. not govern from Medina, which was the initial um, the transformation of the community of believers into a community of citizens belonging to the Islamic civilization. Right. His meaning in Damascus is crucially important because he was there for more than 20 years before he took over the position, and he was here at the borders with Byzantium. Hence, mm -hmm. he had an army, well-trained army, and that army actually debated and fought 
on yearly basis with the Byzantine armies, one year winning, the second year gaining, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, transformation also did not go without problems. Muawiyah's mm -hmm. first sin, most people see it, the first sin is that he decided to change the caliphate from a caliphate that actually once the caliph dies, the community comes back together and decides who is to succeed him. Mm -hmm. Muawiyah saw that this was actually a defect in the governing system, that we need to know beforehand when the caliph dies, who is to succeed. So he began to create what later on was taken against him as a hereditary royal position, appointing right. his own son, Yazid, as the next successor, actually splintered the community and they created all sorts of contestants who simply thought that this was an un-Islamic behavior. And of mm -hmm. course, they supported themselves by statements in the Quran, in a, simply saying when the kings come into a, a new city, they actually increase the corruption and increase all of that. And hence, uh, kingship, uh, hereditary kingship in particular, the samples they knew were the Byzantine as well as the Sasanian Empire, were frowned upon by the Quranic statements. And hence, right. Muawiyah was actually forcing this new idea onto the community, and that was not well received. So mm. the, despite the fact that he ruled for 20 years, one of the longest uh, time for a caliph to rule, yet Muawiyah did not rule without objection. There were people who are actually contesting his, uh, his policies. And it is this contestation, which actually was referred to later on, almost a century later, by the famous, uh, uh, the famous jurist, uh, Abu Hanifa, who mm -hmm. actually quoted a prophetic hadith that says, uh, uh, disputes in my community is a blessing from the Lord. Wow. But fighting within my community is a, a transgression and hence it should be, it should be stopped. In other words, okay. encourage disputes, encourage dis discussion, but don't actually split into warring factions. Uh, okay. And what, what, what impact did this have on science and uh, philosophy? Well, it encouraged, the first thing it encouraged in the, in the disputation of who is the, uh, the governing body and what are the duties of the caliph versus the, uh, the subject began to actually uh, take philosophical shape. For example, we are told, or at least Muawiyah tried to, uh, to push, and after him the Umayyad, tried to push the idea that you uh, subjects you have uh, been subjected to the will of God. And this is the, uh, the kind of predestination. Uh, you have been actually cursed uh, and you have been uh, put under my guidance and it is the will of God. You need not object to it. Right. This was severely uh, objected to. And early on, is like as early as the 720s, uh, meaning... Uh, still in the, towards the end of the Umayyad period, people were saying, no, we were given actually the power to actually oversee the, the, uh, the governance of the caliphate and mm -hmm. we are not predestined because God has given us the power to choose. Hence the debate of philosophical debate of free will versus predestination began to actually usurp the political 
picture and to uh, uh, impose itself onto um, uh, uh, the intellectual community and you have to take sides. You take sides right. with the Umayyads and say, you accept the ruler no matter what he says because God has predestined you to be subjected to this ruler or you say, the ruler is responsible to me. Me as a person have a choice to initiate action against the ruler. So this right. is, you can see, where the politics is beginning to give birth to new philosophical ways of thinking. And, and then take us to the second point of how did this impact on the relationship of uh, Arab and Islamic thinkers and scientists with the previous Greek and other earlier traditions? Yeah, this is exactly it because you see uh, the traditional story of telling us how science and philosophy rose in the Islamic civilization tell us exactly that this debate of predestination and um, uh, free will is a Greek idea because it is pregnant with Greek philosophical ideas. Right. Now we are finding, or at least my finding, is that there are characters who we actually hear very, very uh, little of them, were actually f uh, flourishing in the period before the contacts with the Greek, before books were translated from Greek into Arabic. The wow. debate was purely Islamic. And the purely Islamic debate later happened to coincide with what was imported from the, from the Greek um, uh, philosophical thought. And hence it is politics turning itself into philosophy, and turning itself into theories of governance, it is what took precedence at the very beginning. The wow. undisputed um, uh, uh, question is that all of those traditions wanted to justify why civil the civilization known now as an Islamic civilization was a blessing and why they were actually to abide by it, but it is on the matter of interpretation on how we actually subject the caliph to our will, or we are subjected to the caliph. It's this debate that gave rise uh, to the contact uh, with the Greeks and inherited the philosophical, logical arguments, built them within the theological arguments, and hence philosophy actually began to be born before science was born. Wow. Well, it sounds uh, like some of these uh, questions are still being debated or contested across the Arab region today? Do you just obey a, a single ruler who knows best for everybody, or do the people, does the citizenry have a say in what's going on? So, absolutely. Um, it's anyone, anyone in the modern day who is interested or actually wants to know what was the, the, the status of this argument should only go back to the famous caliph called Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, who ruled between the years 685 and 715, at mm -hmm. the same time when he was contemporary with the famous theologian called Hassan al-Basri, who died in the year 728. And it was Abdul Malik ibn Marwan who wrote a letter specifically to Hassan al-Basri asking him whether he would allow him or would think of him as a horrible figure if mm -hmm. he simply adopted the position that the caliph imposes his will on everybody. But Hassan al-Basri in that letter simply tells him, no, you as a caliph, you are subject to the will of the people, in fact, and it is their willingness to serve you and to give you allegiance is what constitutes your legality. That letter still survives, fortunately, and it is absolutely a gem of wisdom that one should actually um, uh, contemplate it even in modern days. 
that that there is no no ruler who should be beyond accountability. Well, that's a good lesson for people who ask, what's the use of studying history? <laughs> there, there's yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in the four five minutes we have left, let's go to the third third point: uh, the uh, the age of decline, as you uh, question it, or the golden age, as sometimes it's called. And the, in contrast, w what are we talking about here after four or five centuries of um, dynamic uh, action and research and thinking in, in the Arabic and Islamic world? Briefly, briefly, I know we are uh, very uh, rest for time. Briefly, is that it looks like with the establishment of Islam as the governing civilization, meaning the requirements of religion itself, meaning also in particular, when do you pray? Uh, where uh, uh, where do you look to determine uh, the uh, new moons and uh, to actually uh, produce the uh, the actions of the religious requirement? Those generated a lot of um, uh, scientific questions of high importance. I'll give you an example. If you are told as a Muslim, no matter where you are in the earth, you are told to face Mecca when you pray, which you have to do it five times a day. Uh -huh. Facing Mecca on a spherical earth is not a simple matter. Air pilots actually know this. You have to determine which great circle passes through your own local horizon and the same circle should pass through the azimuth and through the, uh, 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 the overhead of Mecca and determine the intersection of that circle with your, with your horizon. Already, right. already, this is spherical trigonometry in uh, Alagalor. And, wow. uh, and this was not known in the Greek tradition uh, in that form because they didn't have to face a specific direction to pray. Islamic right. civilization imposed that, produced that science that came with it. Of course, the great question is that why did it? Why did this um, activity come to a halt? Uh, my claim, which but I sorry, so just to interrupt you, it, it it came to a halt after four five hundred years, right? I mean, uh, we have people uh, say that it came to a halt about the, the time of Ghazali, the famous the jurist who died in the year eleven eleven uh, uh -huh. A.D. Because, and they think of that, because they're thinking of European models, Ghazali wrote a book which he calls it Tahafut al-Falasifa, not al-Falsa. People uh -huh. misinterpret this. He literally called his book The Incoherence of the Philosophers, in mm. which he argued against the heirs of Greek philosophy for not paying attention to the logic of their own philosophy, meaning judging the philosophers by their own rules and in that book people because of the confusion between the philosophers and philosophy people thought that ah he's attacking both of them at the same time it's not true turns out that Razali was one of the best philosophers ever produced because he knew exactly how philosophy should operate he also knew exactly the logic relationship to philosophy these people actually who attribute the decline to Razali are absolutely on no valid grounds because I show in my latest book that the best production of the Islamic sciences, particularly Islamic astronomy, were produced after the death of Ghazali and then also after the invasion of the Mongols in the year 1258, the destruction of Baghdad, that people think this is the other death, uh, uh, kiss of death, 
to the Islamic State. Both of them did not actually, are not supported. Both of those theories are not supported by the resources and by the documents that I actually um, uh, investigate now. Uh, hence, my latest book that came out in the year 2015, which I called it The Features of Originality and Creativity in the Later Commentaries and Explanations on the Greek Philosophical Cosmology. That wow. book showed that after the Ghazali debate, after the Mongol invasion, there was a plethora of productions of people actually still debating the theoretical foundations of Greek astronomy. And these are the ones that actually um, can be documented now to say that they created a vitality unknown before, and hence it is a golden age. The time of decline that I call the time of decline, I know I want to take one minute. Yes, the yes, time of ahead. decline is when the European civilization by accident and this is, again, I, I take it supported by Adam Smith. By accident of the discovery of the new world, hence running into tons and tons of gold and silver unknown from anywhere else, where the rest of the civilization, of the global civilization known at the time, was being depleted. It is that European hit of the new world called America that actually produced the Renaissance. Since we should look for economical reasons, for the rise of modern science, decline of others, because it's not only the Islamic civilization that declined. The Chinese civilization declined, the Indian civilization declined. Well, in 1550s or so, they were all on equal footing. The Chinese, right. the Indian, and the Islamic civilization, and well as a European. The takeoff is actually happened after the discovery of the new world and hence the production of new science in Europe in a new format. This wow. new rise and new science in Europe rested on two important pillars that nobody has actually discovered how to solve them. The first mm -hmm. pillar is the invention and the transformation of the production of science as expenditure into a production of science as investment. Europeans actually were the first to initiate um, the science academies, where the science academies would actually produce scientific um, results. Scientific results would be rewarded by patents. And this is the subject of my next book, by the way, is the mm -hmm. role of patents in the rise of modern science. Without patenting, modern science would have disappeared. And we all know every scientist now working on his lab, if he is not supported by a research grant, and by a patenting possibility to, uh, to yield the commercial profit from it, mm -hmm. science would die off tomorrow. It's this yes. European trick that no other civilization produced before the 20th century that mm -hmm. actually allowed European science to overcome and surpass all others. And hence, in contrast and in comparison, everything else looked like it was declined. Wow. So when you look at this flow of power and wealth and scientific discovery between East and West or North and South. You're looking at the history of colonialism. You're looking at the history of capitalism. You're looking at a whole range of uh, dynamics that, tra that transcend just any one narrow issue like political rule or religious edicts or anything like that. Absolutely. Without this global view, without 
following actually Adam Smith, who actually said and tells us that the trade routes changed drastically after the discovery of the new world. And it is the loss of economies that used to go into the Islamic civilization now goes through the Atlantic, meaning after the discovery, and goes through the Cape of Good Hope. And hence, this bypassing Islamic civilization caused the decline to Islamic civilization, to China, and to India at the same time, and the superiority of the Western uh, uh, economies took over, which was quickly translated into military occupation, into colonialism. Let's not forget that the first army of the Brits that came into India were all attempting to support the East India Company. Hence, right. the, 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 the commercial activities came first, mm -hmm. The occupation comes next, and we are still suffering up till this today from the legacies of both the Indian, uh, the uh, British uh, occupation of India, and the French occupation of the rest. Wow. Well, on that note, uh, Professor Saliba, we will have to stop, and you've given us plenty of thought to come back to you one day soon to take up this incredible historical. Uh, story, um, uh, maybe looking at the last 400 years or 500 years and uh, seeing what your, you and your colleagues and students are looking at in the recent years. Perfect. Great. I would like to come again. Anytime you need me, just call. Thank you. So our guest has been Professor George Saliba, Director of the Farooq Jabbar Center for Arabic and Islamic Science and Philosophy at the American University of Beirut. Thank you so much, Professor Saliba. Thank you to all our audience for being with us. I'm your host, Rami Khouri, and join me again next week with another guest. Bye for now.